Marvin and Jennifer Thomas have been attending Mount Hope for the last couple of years. Marvin is a student at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and while he's been a student there, he's been doing his mentored ministry here at Mount Hope. Some of you uh, have uh, connected with Marvin as he's helped with the connection groups, and also he's led the baptism class, even did a wedding in the last uh, few months that he's been here, and uh, you've been getting to know him, we've been getting to know him better, and uh, they've been getting to know uh, us as well. And I've asked Marvin to share uh, this morning in the last Sunday of our Remedy series, and uh, Marvin's going to be sharing this morning on a message called The Final Remedy. Would you welcome Marvin? Thank you, Pastor, for that introduction. It's definitely a privilege and an honor for me to be able to stand up here with the word of the Lord and to declare of the good things that he's doing. This past week, Jen and I, we were able to go down to Atlanta for Christmas. Uh, my family lives there, and so we were able to go down and spend some time with them. And as most of you, Christmas is a wonderful time of the year for, for us. I love Christmas. It's that, that morning, you, uh, you're surrounded by family, the, the trees lit, the fire is going, you exchange gifts, you sing songs, you, uh, you, t uh, you spend time with each other sharing stories, and you talk about how God sent his son to us. It's a wonderful time. It's, it's one of those times that I always cherish. But 16 years ago, it was a little different. What is usually a happy, a wonderful time of the year, a day of joy and of uh, celebration, was a day filled with fear and chaos. We were afraid of what was next. You may not know, but um, I, before I moved here to the United States, I lived in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And if you know anything about the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Christmas is not a it is not allowed. Christians don't have the freedom of religion. They don't have the freedom to uh, get together as we sit here. We sit here in absolute freedom, worshiping with each other. This is not allowed. And so, but we've been there and God has blessed us. And as a testimony, we've been to church every week that we've been in Saudi Arabia. And it was only because of God's protection. But that one Christmas day, we were at home, my family and I, we were all we were sitting there just, you know, having, doing our Christmas thing. And all of a sudden, we hear these loud knocks on the door. My mom rushes in because it was a little unusual at that time. And as she opens, she recognizes two of her friends standing at the door. Now, they're both standing there fearful, pale, shivering, shaking almost, and she realized instantly that something was wrong. She brought them in and sat them down. We uh, offered them something to drink, and we asked them what was going on. This is what they said. Just across the street from where we lived, these two ladies and a few other women, or a few other families had gotten together, and they were celebrating Christmas. But what they did not know was someone had informed the police, the, uh, the religious police, the religious police, that they were meeting. And on that Christmas day, as they worshiped, as they sang songs, as they talked about Jesus, the police came, knocked down their door, and arrested every man that was in that, in that place. 
these two women, they somehow escaped that, that, that house and they ran over to us. We brought them in. Um, we hit them as long as we could, hoping that the situation would go down. It never did. It got worse as the, as the police, uh, when they had one church, they decided they would go after everybody over there. They started hunting down churches. They started hunting down people, arresting people, arresting leaders, torturing leaders. Most of them were expelled from the country. Some were tortured for a while before they were sent home. And I can remember vividly sitting there that day, listening to them and asking this question. When would all this end? Is there a time when we can live in peace with our neighbor? Will Christians and Muslims and everyone just be able to cool it off and say, you know what, let's, let's get along? When will trials and suffering and persecution of the church cease? I remember asking that in my childlike mind. But what I did not realize was that is an age-old question. You see, people have been asking the same question for ages and ages. When will our sufferings come to an end? When will everything be done? When will we have a permanent remedy to what we are facing? What is this remedy? One of my favorite things to do every year as we come to a close is to take stock of the year. So for me, 2013 was a, was a good year. It was rough with school and with all the things that we had to get done, but we, it was a relatively good year. Many of you have the same stories. Some of you got married this year. Some of you had children. Some of you graduated high school or college. Some of you got brand new jobs. So, so many things to celebrate. There, some of you even accepted the Lord this year, started a new relationship with Him. Some even got baptized. So many things to celebrate. But for some, our stories are different. Some of us, we walked into, one, uh, walked into work one day, left with a pink slip. The others left the doctor's office knowing that we just had a few more days or a few more months to live. Some of us lo lost loved ones. Event or in the tragedies like what happened in the Philippines across the globe or what happened just downtown with the marathon bombings influenced and formed our lives this year. We all have stories of tragedy that we, that we hold personal to ourselves. And this is the question that we often ask. When will this end? Is there an answer to this problem that we face? When will our suffering come to an end? When will homelessness be be removed? When will single parents and all the trials that they face, when will all that come to an end? When will my sickness come to an end? When will my loved one be returned back to me? These are trials that we face on a daily basis. Is there an answer to these questions that I ask? For some, there's a never-ending struggle. For some, we have struggles one day, it's good the next, and next day it's different. This week, or this past couple of weeks, as I was preparing, I was, I was led to Romans chapter 8. And I will ask you to turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. Romans chapter 8, 18 through 25. 
And Paul is writing to the church who, just like the church in Saudi, were also persecuted. For I consider that the sufferings at this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the, the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For this, in this hope, we were saved." Now, hope is not, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This past month, we've been talking about Remedy. The series, we named it Remedy. We started off with Pastor Brian talking about the remedy that was needed for the problem of sin, the problem of death. We celebrate Christmas just this past Wednesday and Advent throughout the, throughout the month. What we were celebrating was the fact that Jesus came from above. God sent his only son down to this earth. He sent his son down to the earth with one purpose and one purpose alone, to come and die for the sins of you and I, to die for our sins so that we would be restored back in relationship with him. There was a price that was, that, was, that was required for our sins and only one person or only one could pay. And so Jesus comes down as a remedy to the problem of sin. And then we transition over the next couple of weeks of talking about how we can be a part of that remedy. We talked about our role in this whole cosmic picture. Sometimes inserting ourselves into situations that need our influence. Sometimes in situations that we may not be comfortable, but God is calling us to. But today I want to address a different side of this problem. A problem that we don't have control over. Our sufferings, sometimes we have no control over. Death, we have no control over. What it comes against us, we often have no control over. All we can do at these moments are cry out, Lord, is there a solution? Moments when we cry out, when will this end? When will my children be restored back to me? Or when will my, when will my loved ones be healed? What is the final remedy to this situation? In this passage, Paul is dealing with such an issue. He's talking to a church, the Roman church, who was also being persecuted in their time. We may never know how much of a price they paid for their beliefs. There are instances of people being crucified, instances of people being burned alive, skinned alive, put in burning oil, put up in stakes, fed to the lions. These were the things that the church faced. And to this church, Paul is writing that the sufferings of this present time are now worth the glory that is revealed to us. He is writing about the sufferings that they're facing, and he says, it's nothing. 
Because there is a day that is coming when all this shall be, that shall be revealed. The answer that you're seeking, the questions that you have will be answered on that day. The question you have is when will this come to an end? And the, the answer Paul is giving is, Jesus, our final remedy is coming. And when he comes, everything will be restored. Our sufferings will ha- has an end date. There is an expiration date to what we are facing today. There is a day when everything will be restored. There is a day when our, when our pains will be taken away. Our tears will be wiped away. And he's saying in, in these words that our sufferings will be eased on the coming of our Lord. The first thing Paul is telling this church is that you're not alone in your suffering. When, he's, when, when I say the church... I talk about humanity as a whole. We're not alone in our suffering. What he's saying is that creation suffers with you. Now, to understand this better, we have to backtrack a little bit. Go back all the way to the beginning of our Bibles, to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created what was good. He created what was perfect. He created what he deemed wonderful. And along with creation, he also created man and, he, and woman, Adam and Eve. Everything was good until man disobeyed and sin came into the picture. See, I mentioned earlier that sin has a price. Sin has a consequence that follows. And because man sinned, God had to judge out the consequence to them. But what was Interesting about that moment was even though they sinned just for themselves, it affected all of creation. Adam had his consequence to pay. Eve had her consequence to pay. The serpent who, be, who deceived them had his, the consequences to pay. Creation as a whole came under the curse. And today, most of what we see today, almost everything that we see today, is an effect of the sin that happened on that day. It's a consequence that this creation is paying. But what Paul is saying is here, creation cries out. He's almost likening it to a woman giving birth. He's saying that there's, there is a cry from creation saying, redeem us, restore us. We are tired of being under this curse. It's almost like that woman who is on that delivery table and she is in pain and agony in that moment. But what she has is a hope and expectation as that through this process that she will deliver a beautiful baby. You see, the creation as a whole is groaning. Paul says creation groans, man groans. And we're groaning for an answer to the situation that we're in. So now we've established that both man and creation groans. They're suffering. So what is the answer to this? What do we have as an anchor? Paul begins by saying saying this. He's, to answer this question, he does it in faces. The first part that he says the church has is hope. The church is given hope so that one day, to believe for that day. See, hope is a term that we often throw about, especially over these past few years. We see it all over TV. We see it all over media. We've seen campaign slogans that said hope and change or hope for America. Hope is a word that signifies what we want. 
We want something to change. We're not satisfied with what we have, and so we want something. And so anyone running for office capitalizes on that and says, this is what I can offer you. I can offer you hope. See, hope is a powerful thing to us. It is a lifestyle in which we live. It is the way we define the way we're going to attack the next step or take the next step. One afternoon, a man walked up into, into a ball field and he made his way to the dugout and he noticed a game going on. There he approached the little boy sitting in the dugout and he said, how's the game going? The little boy said, pretty good. We're 18 and 0 and we're losing. And the, boy, and the man said, whoa, you must be disappointed. The little kid said, why? We haven't even been up to bat yet. You see, the little boy had something called hope. He knew the moment he got up to bat, he could change his situation. It was hope that anchored his outlook for that game. It was hope that determined that when he stood up, things would change. No matter how dire the situation you're in right now, hope determines how you look at life. As I was preparing for this, I was reading of a, of a study done. In a lab, researchers took two, two rats... In one, in one container, they, both containers, they filled it up with water, put one of the rats in this container and one rat in the other. They watched the first rat. It swam for a little bit. It started sinking. Swam up for a little bit, started sinking, but within about an hour or so, it gave up. They looked at the second rat, but what they did differently with this one was it swam for a little bit, came up, started sinking, but swam a little more, came up, started sinking. But what they did different was they lifted it up and then dropped it right back in. Now, the second rat kept swimming, came up. Even though it sank, it did not give up. So they lifted it back up, put it back in, and this rat kept going on for hours and hours. What they realized that was different between the first one and the second one was not anything else but the fact that the second rat had hoped that someone would lift it up out of that water. And that kept it going. It, in its mind, it said, I will keep going until that person lifts me up. This is hope. But Paul qualifies hope a little, bo a little bit more. In verse, uh, in verse 24 and 25, he says, now the latter part of 24 says, Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This morning when I was coming to church, I was wondering, you know, I'm going to be speaking. It's, it's going to be at least a half hour long, and I'm going to be speaking twice. My throat's going to get parched. I need some water. And I told Jen, can you make sure there's water? But then I realized that this is always here. Every Sunday we walk in, there's a cup of water right here. Mr. Bill Sullivan and his team, they make sure that this water is here. See, what I have is a guarantee that this water will be here when I stand up to preach. I don't have to hope that this water will be here because I know. Because I know the one who is taking care of it. And when I stand up here and I look, I'm not hoping for water to be there because I can see it. I have a guarantee. Hope, that, hope in something that we see is not hope at all. So what is this hope that he's talking about? See, you all have hope. You hope that as a speaker, I'll be done on time. 
and maybe even early. No guarantees, but you hope. A little on a serious note, when we step out of our houses every morning, we step out of our driveway, we drive out, we hope that we make it back home that night. We hope that the drunk driver next to us does not, does not run into us. We hope for our brothers and our sons and our daughters who are out in the battlefield that they'll make it back home one day. This is hope. We hope that, our, uh, that everything that, our, that we're facing will one, day be, will one day change. We hope that our sufferings will come to an end. That hope that is not seen is what we hope for. We hope in something that we expect, hope in something that will change. But he goes on to explain how exactly we eagerly hope for, just as the, that earth and, and that imagery that Paul uses of that woman giving birth, that is how we hope. We hope with our entire being. We hope with everything that we have. So now Paul is establishing that you hope for things not seen. He's telling them, your sufferings are something that you experience right now. You're seeing your circumstances. You're seeing everything, you, everything that you're going through. But what you're hoping for is something beyond that. You're hoping for a deliverance beyond what you're experiencing. You're hoping for the glory. And worse, in the first verse, he says, the sufferings that you face are not worthy to compare to the glory that you will receive. You see, your circumstances right now should not, in, should not have bearing on what, how you hope. Your hope is beyond all that. So then what is this hope? What is Paul talking about? Our hope is Jesus. Our hope is that Jesus, our final remedy, is coming. God works in two, in two different aspects of time. He works in the past he works in the, in the future. In the past, we see God working in that he sent his only son to die on the cross for us. We see him bringing solution to a problem that we could not fix. We see him addressing the problem of sin, and he, we see him bringing a remedy. But what we are hoping for is a, a solution to the problems that we have coming up. The problems that we face right now, we're looking for a God who works in the future. The hope that we have is something that we refer to as a blessed hope. In the Assemblies of God, Mount Hope is a part of the Assemblies of God, the fellowship. We define it this way. Our blessed hope is the resurrection of those who have fallen asleep in Christ and their translation together with those who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord. Big words, big definition. But this is what it means. When the Lord comes, those who have already fallen asleep or, or are dead in the Lord will be raised up. They will be taken up out of the grounds. They will be raised back up in, by the power that comes through the Spirit. And we who are still here, part of the church, will all be taken up into heaven with Him. This is the rapture that we often talk about. The rapture, the blessed hope that God, that Jesus, our Savior, is coming back for His church. You see, He has not left us here to to fend for ourselves. He, he has not left us here to live out eternity for ourselves, but instead he is saying, there is a day coming when I come back for you. Jesus tells his disciples, I am going to prepare a place, and when that is done, I will come back for you. That is our blessed hope. Our blessed hope that our Christ comes back. This hope is a guaranteed hope. When Jesus gives us his word, it is word that we can take to the bank. It is something that we can hold on to. 
Right after Jesus died, three days later, he raises, he's raised up. And a few days later, he's taken up into the heavens. And in that moment when he's taken up, all the believers are surrounding him. The disciples are surrounded there, and they're looking up as Jesus is taken into the clouds. Angels come there, and they tell these men, say, men of Galilee, why are you looking into the clouds? Because the one who went into the clouds will come back the same way. There's a guarantee that we have that the word of God gives us that we have a Savior who is coming back for us. This is our blessed hope. It is a guaranteed hope. This hope is an imminent hope. The word imminent is used for something that can happen at any moment. You see, when Jesus described his coming, he describes it as a thief in the night. I don't know about you, but I don't like thieves in the night. I, don't, I, I prefer they don't come. But he says when a thief comes in the night, he comes unexpectedly. He comes when you don't expect him at all, when you're comfortable when you're asleep, when you think you have safety around you, that's when the thief comes. <coughs> Excuse me. Paul is, <clears throat> Jesus is saying it's an imminent return. It's also historical hope. From the day that Jesus was taken up till today, the church has held on to one cardinal hope is that Jesus would come back. The church in the early church, in the first century, the persecuted church, they held on to it even though they had nothing else. When their dignity was stripped away, when their possessions were taken away, when they were jailed, when they were killed, when they had nothing, the only thing that they had was hope. Hope that Christ would come back. The first century believed that. The second century, the third and the fourth, and all the way down to the 20 and the 21st century, we still hold on to this hope that Christ is coming. It is an imminent, it is a historic hope. The emphasis, while we hold on to this, the emphasis may not have always been as strong. Sometimes we hold on to it for, for dear life, and that's all we are about, sometimes not so much. Even in this past century, if you were here a few decades ago, you would have heard songs like, Behold, He Comes. What a day that will be. You may even have heard this hymn saying, Jesus may come today, glad day, glad day. And I would see my friends' dangers and troubles would end if Jesus would come today. These were the songs that defined us as a group. These were the songs that defined us as a movement, as, as Christians. We looked forward to the day. Some days we don't even talk about it anymore. Not only is it a historic faith, hope, it is a glorious hope. See, when Jesus came the first time, he came as a baby in a manger. He came as one who had no place in this world. But when he comes back the next time, he comes back victorious. He comes back as the king of all kings. He comes back as the ruler of all rulers. He comes back as the Lord of all lords. He comes back with the host of his armies. He comes back with the host of his angels. He comes back with the church. He comes back glorious. He comes back victorious. And that is our blessed hope. When he comes, it'll be rejoicing for the church, not so much for outside. The question that is posed to each and every one of us today is, are you a part of that body? Are you a part of this believing body who has accepted the Lord and the work that he has done for you? Do you, do you accept that you have a problem of sin and that o the only remedy is Jesus and his death for you? When Christ returns, the problem of suffering and of pain is addressed. 
Almost every funeral that I've attended, or every hospital room that I've been in, every tragedy that I've, that I've experienced with people, the one question that is a universal question, an age-old question, when will this end? You see, John, in the book of Revelation, he writes this. Revelation chapter 21, he writes, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new and this is our assurance. Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. That is the hope that we hold on to. Paul is saying the thing that we have right now is hope for the future, is hope for Jesus, the remedy. Now, this is a beautiful hope. It's a hope that we all hold on to. But as I mentioned before, we don't often live it. Today, as a society, we live in a very fast-paced environment. We look for immediate results. We want immediately what we, what we, what we desire. We like drive-through food. We like drive-through banking, drive-through pharmacy, drive-through wedding chapels, and my favorite, drive-through Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> we are a fast-paced society. We get aggravated when there's a slow driver in front of us or someone is slower than we'd like them to be. We like instant results. And so sometimes we're focused on the today and we don't focus on the waiting. Paul is telling that the church is called to do two things. We're called to wait eagerly for the Lord's coming, but at the same time live in the moment, address the obligations and the purposes that we have today. Just recently, as I was preparing for this, I was reading about three young men who started a computer company in their garage. In 1976, they started this company. And they would soon change the entire world. Apple started taking its first orders in 1976. We know of the two, uh, two, um, uh, two of the men who started this company, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. Those are familiar names in everyday, in everyday terms. But the one that we do not know is Ronald Wayne. You see, the reason we don't know him is because on the first year that they started taking in orders, Ronald decided he would sell his share in the company. He had a 10% stake in the company. It was worth $800. He sold it that day. What a costly mistake. It's estimated now, if he, it, now that if he had kept that $800 stock, he would be worth well over $35 billion. People often ask him why he did that, and it, he often traces it back to his own failures before starting Apple. You see, he used to sell slot machines, and before he, when he did that, he was running a business that was failing. He took out all these loans, and he spent years paying them off. In the first year that Apple took, in, took up orders, they had to take in loans, and he feared that he would go back into the same failures, and he walked away. A wasted opportunity. So we all hate wasted opportunities. We look, like to look back and say, I used up every moment that I had. I used up all my potential. I used up all my resources for the best. 
So when Jesus is talking about wasted opportunities, he mentions the story of the talents. A, a rich man, a rich landowner, he's about to travel, and before he does, he calls three of his servants. To one, he gives five talents. To the other, two, and to the third one. You see, a talent in those days was 20 years worth of their salary. What a person made in one year times 20 was a talent. And to the first one, he gives five, to the second two, and to the third one. The man leaves. The man who had five, industrious man, he goes out, he makes, he does whatever he can, and he doubles it. The second one with two, he does the same thing. He goes, works hard, and he doubles it. The third man, knowing the character of the owner, he goes out and he hides it. He digs a hole in the ground, puts it in, and covers it up. And when the, when the master comes back, there's a, there's a day where he reckons all these, all these accounts and he says to, the, uh, to his servants, bring back what you have done. The first and the second, they come back and say, here, master, we have doubled what you have given us. The third comes back and says, I know, you do, I know you're evil and so I have not done everything that you have asked me. I put it in the ground and here it is. This is what the master has said to, is, says to him. You wicked servant... You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered? Then you ought to have invested my money with bankers, and at my coming I should have received at least what was owed to me with interest. You see, that, one, that man's one talent was taken away and given to somebody else, and he was cast out. What Jesus is saying to his disciples is, I am going away for a little bit. But before I go, let me give you this. Let me give you this talent. Let me give you these resources that you can use. Let me give you time. Let me give you ability. Let me give you money. Let me give you all these things. While not physical, this is what he's saying. Just like that master, he is coming back one day. And he is asking the church, what will you have on that day when he comes back? You see, when we, when, we talk about, when we talk about the coming of Jesus, while it's so great and we are happy and this is our blessed hope, it's also the day of reckoning. How are we preparing for it? Individually, when you think about it, do you think about it in terms of the day that I have to prepare for it? Would you have to change your lifestyle when you think about the coming of Jesus Christ? Would you have to think, change the way you think and your thoughts? Would you have to change the way you spend your time and your money and your abilities? Would you have to seek out forgiveness from the people you have wronged? Would you have to, would you have to re, you, uh, rethink the way you use your time? Are there commandments in the Bible that you neglect to obey? Tithing, reading the Bible, witnessing. What exactly do you have to do to prepare for the coming? The same question, while it's an individual question, is also posed to the church. As a church, are we ready for the coming of the Lord? Are we preparing ourselves as a body when He comes? What is our focus? Is our focus inward where we're building big buildings and we're doing all these great things for ourselves or are we seeking out the ones that are lost? Are we connecting ourselves from in here to out there? Is the community seeing a lamp that is lit, drawing people to the Lord? We have to judge ourselves based on these, knowing that the Lord is coming soon. It, it is good for those who are in the church, 
and who have accepted the Lord and who are seeking His coming. But there may be some of you here today who have never known the Lord, who have never known that he, has, he came on that Christmas morning. He came as a little child for the very fact that He came to redeem you and me. He came so that He would take us from sin into a relationship with Him, from sin into holiness, from, from destruction into life eternal. Are you willing to consider a relationship with Him? See, I started to this, this, this message by talking about those questions I asked 16 years ago. It's an age-old question. When will our suffering cease? When will everything come to a close? And Paul is giving us the answer. Jesus, our remedy, our final remedy is coming. You see, this is the blessed hope that we have. It is a glorious hope. It is an imminent hope. It is a hope of things that Christ will come. And as I'm concluding, I want to go back to that passage in Revelation. I'll ask the worship team to come up and I'll read this passage one more time. As we walk out of here, let us, let us think about what God is doing and how he is preparing for that time. When you're going through your time of suffering, when you're going through your time of pain, when you have just lost that loved one, realize that it is not permanent. For the day is coming when he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This is our blessed hope. Jesus, our final remedy, is coming. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you for you sent your Son onto this earth to die for our sins and to restore us back into relationship with you. Father, I pray for all of us sitting here that as we examine ourselves, as we come to the close of this year and we look ahead into the next, that we, that we are convicted of the areas that we can prepare for your coming. If for those of us who have never had a relationship with you, I pray that we will make those decisions today. We thank you for the hope that we have, a hope that is eternal, a hope that doesn't fade, a hope that is glorious. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.